Hello and welcome to the 110th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and the second half discusses the game they hit promote, which in this case is Eon Alter by Flying Helmet Games. Joey and Scott, who are you? What do you do? Hi, uh, I'm Scott Penner. I'm the uh, lead developer at Flying Helmet Games. Uh, I am—I wear a lot of hats. I do game design. Uh, I do a little bit of programming. Uh, I help with marketing, uh, and I'm also one of the founders of the company. So, um, I—but uh, foremost and, uh, and, and first, I, I really like uh, game design. That's my my primary focus. I'm Joey Wiggs. I'm the lead programmer on Eon Alter uh, programming. Being my forte, it's about 80% what I do, but I also do uh, game design. I work closely with Scott and uh, our other designers uh, to help build things that they can use in the game, as well as doing a little bit of design work myself, but it's mostly programming. I noticed a reference to hats. Does it even fly? Sorry, I had to ask. <laughs> uh, well, we have a we have a long uh, kind of uh, nerdy role playing game story to describe why we call our studio Flying Helmet Games. Um, we'd be happy to tell it to you if you want. Uh, we could do it maybe later on when it's more sort of like focused on the development of Ian Alter because they're related. I have a do it. Remember, it's a funny story. It is. It is an awesome story. I think I'd none like... of my hats fly though. No, they don't. They don't. No. And I think it might be linked to the third question we're going to ask in the first half of the show. Uh, <laughs> so, but before we get into that, because it's a great story, I've heard it, everyone face to face. Because we've we've actually met, um, uh, I actually met these these fine gentlemen at PAX East 2013, thousands of years ago now. Um, wow. But um, feels like that. But uh, so much has happened since then, and so I'm so excited to have them on the show today. But before we go delving into that, let's ask them: Where on earth did you get into the making of flashy, lighty video games? Uh, well, I'll start uh, first, yeah. uh, if that's okay, Joey. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I actually I, I went to school to do music performance. Uh, I really wanted to sing, and uh, and at at some point uh, during my first year at university, I uh, found myself just uh, you know doodling and drawing and 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 thinking of weird ideas a lot more than I was actually taking notes and learning how to play music. And so I, th- I thought I should probably, you know, take that as an indication that music isn't right for me. And uh, so I decided to go to art school instead. I did um, some animation, some 3D modeling. And, uh, and so as a result, I kind of got like a circuitous entry into like a backdoor into the, the video games industry because I started as a, as a cinematic animator uh, working on Need for Speed for Electronic Arts. And uh, that was way back in like 2005, 2004. Oh, right. The, and the later Need for Speed, because I always remember the very first one, because I'm thousands of. Yeah, yeah. I started yeah. <laughs> I started with Most Wanted. So they'd, they'd just oh, come okay. out with Undercover 2, which was like the pinnacle of, of street racing culture, right? And then yeah. Most Wanted kind of was, was the first one that I'd worked on there. And, and one of the things that I found while I was working there was, you know, obviously I was animating, I was doing some car animations and tiny bit of character animation but uh i actually found myself doing a lot of like deep diving into the 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 game and the code and trying to figure out how i was gonna you know make this this moment feel more impactful and like even starting to work with some of the actual game designers to do um you know these these moments where you know i might have to time something properly with the controller to get a certain cinematic 
dramatic result. Um, and like, it was very simple, but at the same time, I, I like, I started to see the bells and whistles and, uh, and you know, how, how games were built at a big studio. And over the course of, of the time that I spent there and, and, you know, moving on to other studios, um, really, really starting to develop an appreciation for how games are designed and, and made and how, how they're made fun. So um, that's kind of where I started. I did do a little bit of like moving around. I went and did some animation again for, for a couple of other companies, but uh, ultimately uh, decided, um, you know, way back in 2012 that uh, I really wanted to do this as a career and um, started, started playing helmet games with some of my friends. Wow. So you, you were starting in like large, larger studios. This is quite an achievement. And then you, 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 you learned a lot about game development and what really takes, what, what, what components you need to bring together uh, during that time. Is that right saying that? That's basically it. And like I said at the beginning, you know, I wear a lot of hats. And so one of the things that I found was, you know, especially going into indie development, you have to be able to cross disciplines very quickly. Uh, you know, you're working on a team where there might not be a, a professional, you know, animator working with you that day, or you might not have an effects artist, or you might not have uh, all of the coding support that you need. So you, you have to learn uh, very quickly how to do some of those disciplines if you want to support your team. And and so the, the experience that I'd had prior to that, I kind of did have to do some of those things, working on a cinematic where maybe a car is driving up and you want some birds to flap in the background. Well, okay, we'll make a particle effect. How do I do that? Well, I've got to learn. And and one of the the, the, the biggest things that I've, I've tried to do over my career is just learning how to do all these various different disciplines so that when the time comes, I can actually be a support to my team. It's those hard skills, I believe they call them, isn't it? Uh, That's right. Yeah, it's very important to be one track, like, uh, I'm a producer. That's great. You got any other skills? No, just, just going bar charts on a program and or schedule, I believe you call it, and then, uh, <laughs> then putting resources yeah. in. That's, and then adding milestones and then yelling at people. That, that's what I do. Okay. <laughs> um, there's the door. Sorry. No, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> what about you, Joey? Where did you make your start making flashy, lucky video games? So my... I- for me, the, my entire experience is almost the polar opposite of Scott's, where, like, from grade six, I was like, I want to make video games. This is the <laughs> thing I want to do. Like, my first video game I ever made was in Macromedia Director, which is the precursor to Flash. So, just um, for our audience, what is grade six? Because I'm British and we don't have that over here. Uh, sixth grade primary school. No, was that uh, about 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, ish. <laughs> uh, so, but, young, um, so, you made a Flash game. I made it well, before Flash even existed. Oh, it was wow. the precursor to Flash. Um, but that's sort of how I started. And I, I knew I was like, I want to make video games. So even through university, when I was getting my computer science degree, it was with a concentration in video games design. And then I didn't do anything with it. Instead, I went to Microsoft for seven years, and I worked in the office org. Um, as a programmer, like I was still software engineering. I was still doing really interesting technical things. Uh, and honing my programming skills uh, and engineering skills and all that. But uh, for me, Flying Helmet is actually my first professional uh, gaming gig. So I, I joined on the team. I wasn't the. I didn't start as lead programmer. I started as senior, and we had uh, uh, Leah. She was our lead programmer uh, before I became, but she left. But um, 
but yeah, so for me, it was more my my trajectory into the games industry was, I mean, very focused on programming, very one single track, etc. Uh, but I mean, I have my own blog. I I've done uh, games design in university, and uh, my blog does a lot of game design breakdown. So despite my professional experience being very uh, single track, my hobby, my the the hobbyist aspect, my education aspect uh, helped prepare me to actually do video game stuff but it's been the dream so to speak for a very long time for me so were you working on little games and concepts and stuff while you were bashing away at the microsoft mill um not so much unfortunately i mean i wanted to but uh the one thing about programming gigs is they tend to be extremely time intensive and uh it wasn't as it's not as bad as like the rumors, like, you, you remember, like, the whole EA spouse thing, like, yes. in the mid-2000s, where it's like, oh, man, everybody's working 80 hours. Yes. It was never that bad in application development, but it was certainly it was certainly a lot of hours, and I'll admit that I didn't have a lot of drive outside uh, work to do much else because I was basically not brain-dead, but my the creative juices were not flowing because there there was just wasn't much left after uh, doing for work. I just realized um, why I asked that, because it's maybe a little bit... The last thing you want to do is sit down at home like, okay, okay, dear, I'll just spend the last eight hours, maybe even longer, in front of a screen. I'm now going to spend another four or five hours doing exactly the same thing, only this time I've got a rubber ball bouncing across the screen. It's not quite the same, <laughs> is it, really? It's... Uh, I mean, it's yeah. It is and it isn't. I mean, I I liked I liked what I did at Microsoft in terms of like I said, it was an extremely interesting technical challenge. Um, honestly, some of the stuff I did there is probably more complex than the stuff that I've done for uh, Eon Alter so far, actually. Uh, but at the same time, it was just eh, I want to go do games. Games are more fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's hard to be passionate about XML forms. It's easy to be passionate about. Uh, making a piece of entertainment that people really enjoy. Um, but I did make games, so to speak, in high school. Um, so, like, Scott, myself, and a few of the other folks uh, at the company we met, uh, we went to high school together. Um, and for for me, the, like, I foisted my own homebrew pen and paper RPG on them, which is actually the genesis of Eon Alter, which we could talk about later. But, I mean, I was doing sort of at least pen and paper level game design from high school. And uh, I, like I said, even though I wasn't building games, I was certainly studying them from sort of an academic aspect as uh, throughout my time when I was not uh, building video, video games, but I was playing them and breaking them down. And just because a lot of the design aspects, like game theory, etc., is absolutely fascinating to me. I am convinced that the average... DM, GM, whatever you want to call them, uh, I am one of them, has has to, and it will be a good one, in my opinion, has to have an inkling, an understanding of what it takes to, to design a game, even slightly, not to the point where you, what you guys have done, far from it, but at least have an inkling. Do you know what I mean? It's just, because you're building oh, absolutely. your world and you're creating scenarios through which people you drag... <laughs> <laughs> and a, you know, a DM is a level designer. Like that's are. that's the, the, they're they're almost exactly synonymous in terms of, of tasks. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and when we were looking for 
um, level designers, when we were making you on Alter, one of the first questions we asked was, hey, have you ever, have you ever been a dungeon master for Dungeons & Dragons? Right. Or anything like it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were, we were very actively looking for people who had that experience because we knew that they were going to have the right skill set and the right mindset to be able to do the work that we needed. Yeah, um, speaking personally, I do, I'm running a game at the moment. Sometimes I run more than one, but I try not to do that because it confuses my head. Uh, but I am running a game at the moment, and it's standard fifth edition D&D, you know. It's, it's five players, they're getting on great, they're doing great, but I'm finding when they go off-piste, that's it. Like, oh, I'm going to have to make stuff up now. I can't reveal that I'm making stuff up. But, you know, they've just gone off down the path. They weren't supposed to. I didn't do enough, like, you know, signposting to say, don't go down here. Like, oh, damn, they've gone down there now. Um, you know, I had one instance where I had this old escort quest. I set it all up. I had it all laid out. Ambush points, the works. You know, normal drill. And they went, yeah, not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that very much reminds me of one one day where I built like this entire sort of mystery thing for the guys, and they ended up circumventing the entire like four hours worth of of gameplay, and accidentally went straight to the guy that they were supposed to get to at the end, and I was just like, oh, so there goes my entire session. Yeah, Let's bring it. what do I do? I don't make <laughs> stuff up, and really genuine. I mean, I gave them so much incentive to do this thing, but they went, no, I'm not interested. We need to do this other thing. They wanted to do like the main quest in inverted commas, so I really uh, empathise with your your plight there. And it's just, I do think that to be a good DM or GM or whatever, uh, you need to have some game design in your head because you're given a whole bunch of rules. That's guidelines, sorry, guidelines, not rules, guidelines. And then <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a dungeon master guide, guide. I keep on saying it to players like it's a guide. It says guide. <laughs> I like calling it a framework. It's something that you can build upon. Build upon. So mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, it's it's also one of the things that I find like the one of the hardest challenges of being a game designer or being a dungeon master is being able to like when you're playing a D and D campaign, like you said, you're um, <laughs> you have players who constantly want to off road and go away from what you designed. Um, in a video game, they can't because your level is only so big. Um, but in both cases, um, you know, a good dungeon master is going to be able to, or a good game designer is going to be able to guide players through and make them want to go towards the areas that seem most exciting. And, and make the player feel like they're experiencing the game the way they want to, even though it's exactly the way you, you planned it. Yeah. Um, and I've had to yeah. use, and most DMs use, uh, good ones, use MacGuffins, but not to the point where they are or devices, to, to, to artificial devices that you insert into the world that are credible, that make sense. If you plop something in out of nowhere, like walking along and, like, oh, the characters find some massive... M16, uh, you know, machine gun. What's that? Well, you can just use that to shoot things with. Okay, great. Um, it wouldn't make any sense, but yeah, it's 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 just to keep the thing flowing, but not to the point where you, you you're maneuvering them into such a down a tranche, which is the most interesting, but not to the point where they're just going along rails, because then that yeah. their intelligence. Um, so my next question, then, and this is where you probably can reveal your awesome story of the origins of uh, Flying Helmet Games. What are your influences? <laughs> Joey, why don't you start? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, for influences, clearly pen and paper RPGs are huge for us. Uh, I mean, growing up, we did 
D and D. Pathfinder wasn't a thing yet. I don't think in high school was it. That was college no. later. Yeah. No, because that was second edition when we were, we were in high school. Um, but yeah, so D and D, Rifts, Palladium, uh, White Wolf system stuff. Like you, you name an RPG system from uh, the late '90s, and honestly, our group probably at least tried it. Um, and of course, actual RPGs. I mean, later on. Uh, Bioware, uh, Bioware RPGs are a pretty big influence for us, especially given uh, a couple, a few of our folks are actually uh, Bioware alumni. Um, and uh, for me personally, a lot of my influences uh, come from older school games like Nintendo games, Super Nintendo games. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of JRPG background. Uh, to go along with my pen and paper uh, background, Western RPGs are fun, but I'm not. I'm strangely enough, I actually prefer to have more rails. Like Skyrim was fun, but at the same time, it was like, all right, I ended up going off the rails for eight hours, and now I don't know where I am in my quest. Oh, well, I guess I'm done. Oh, you, you, uh, you'd, uh, you'd be horrified how I played this, the um, Bethesda games. I call them Bethesda, Elder Scroll games. I'm like a la- yeah, yeah. Like a laser beam. Oh, is that is that the mission? Like the main one, okay. Just, I honestly do not get distracted. I'm just like, it's... I would. It's not horrifying. Man. That's I'm in. I'm impressed by the amount of discipline you have, sir. Because <laughs> I, I am so like everywhere. Like I'm just like, there's all these different things and all these different systems. I have to try them all, and then by the time I've tried them all, I'm so lost in the game that I'm like, I can't. I, I've lost the plot, literally and figuratively. And so, I, yeah, yeah, I can see that absolutely. But I basically put myself in the hands of the DM if there is one for these games. In that, well, where they spent most of their time, where they put most of their effort, they'll deny it. But most of the effort is in that rich seam of the main quest. Right. I'm thinking, well, surely yeah, that's no. where all the best stuff is. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, see, whereas I'm, when I'm actually playing a game of D&D or something, I am the DM's worst nightmare in terms of I will, I will go so off-roading that they will never get the quest back on, on track. And it's not even something I do consciously. It's just more like, ooh, this is super cool and shiny. I want to go explore that. And then, and then four hours later, we've done nothing the DM actually wants. (laughs) So I, I am the... Depending on the type of DM, I'm either your best friend or your worst nightmare. Take your pick. So you definitely um, <laughs> influenced by, by pen, and paper, um, pen and paper RPGs, Call of Cthulhu, Paranoia, that sort of stuff. That's cool. Okay. Um, yes, and, uh, yeah. yeah, so um, a lot of the same. I mean, we like Joey said, we, we went to, uh, to school together um, in the later years, um, and we did a lot, of, a lot of pen and paper role-playing as a group, as friends. Um, but, uh, one of the, the early influences for me, my, my grandfather was, I guess you could call him an early adopter of computers. He always had a PC whenever I went to visit my grandparents You know, other people, you know, remember visiting their grandparents for me, it was like, okay, let's go down into, uh, the office and, and start playing computer games. And my grandpa had, um, for me, it was all, all the Sierra classics like, uh, King's quest and space quest and, uh, mixed up mother goose. So some of the early, um, and also some of the early text adventures like Zork, um, those were I, I have really fond memories of playing those with my, my dad and my grandpa. Um, so that was kind of where where my my early influences came from. Um, I really liked playing, obviously, a lot of all the you know early 
Super Nintendo and 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 N sixty four, but for me it was like I never really had a lot of that stuff as a kid growing up, so my house was fairly bare. I did eventually end up getting a Game Boy, but I only ever had Kirby. Kirby's Dreamland was the only game I had for my Game Boy, um, and uh, I, I did end up getting a Super Nintendo where I could borrow some games from friends. But for me, it was like most of my my gaming experience was going to other people's houses to play games with them. Um, so when I got to play Street Fighter or, or Mortal Kombat or uh, Mario Mario Kart, it was always going to a friend's house to play. So a lot of my early childhood memories are always co-op or or, or, or local local multiplayer. Okay. So yeah, obviously that influence is, is thrown in here because uh, yeah, Eon Altar is all about sitting next to each other to the point where it's that's I would say thirty forty percent of the game. You may disagree with that that, that margin, uh, but that's where I'm getting from because it is you can play it on your own and it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's great on your own, but that's why I'm that's why I'm giving that percentage. Um, you may mm-hmm. disagree. Yeah, with no, that. But, um, that's nope, that percentage is pretty accurate. We, we, we like to joke that a lot of games, they make a single-player game and then they tack on multiplayer. We ended up making a multiplayer game and tacked on single-player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like you literally couldn't actually play solo for like the first two-thirds of the development of the game. And then we were like, we can't sell a game that you can't play by yourself to try. Yes, because you need to upsell yeah. it to your friends, you see. That's what I myself. <laughs> Like, what, could, could you bring your phone? Why wouldn't I bring my phone? Just make sure you do. Fine. <laughs> um, but just to emphasise, everyone, why, you know, the, the, how impassioned the Flying Helmet games are about role-playing games, could you give us the story behind the name, please? Either one of you. Probably yeah. I, I, I guess I'll start because I was a player. Joey was actually running the campaign. I, it was, I was you, Joey. Right? Yeah, no, it yeah. was me. Oh my god! <laughs> and so this was this was actually in uh, an early version of the world that the Indian Alter world is based on. Um, we, as a group, had just finished. Uh, you know, I guess one you know, major part of the story. And we were in one of those transitory periods where, okay, we're, we've just finished up in this city and now we need to go to the next city. So we're, you know, you know, marching across, you know, a path in the forest or whatever. And it, as, as is want to do normally dungeon masters are just like, whatever you get to the next town. But of course, one of us, like probably Luke was like, Hey, we need to, uh, um, let's, let's, let's see if there's any merchants on the way. Cause we need to resupply and so we find Joey's just like sure. There's whatever. There's a there's a merchant there. And, I uh, there's a merchant there. Yeah, uh, you know percentile. Okay, sure. Um, so <laughs> we find this cart. And we're like, okay. Um, so the first question we ask is, what does he have? Joey's like, ah, roll, I hate roll you. Roll so more dice. <laughs> so so I, I think at that point you were really bored. So you probably didn't even roll dice. You were just like, what to have whatever. Just let me know what you want, and I'll. Oh yeah, I'll, no, that, that's I'll true. That me. one I didn't. I didn't roll. I was just like, screw it, whatever. He's like, yeah. we have every. He's he's got everything. Just ask him oh, what he wants no, and give it to me. Yeah. No. Yeah. So. No. Yeah. So, yeah. so we had just like a week prior to that finished um, as a group. Um, one of our little exercises was helping Joey design uh, kind of some a list of magical items because we were kind of lacking in, in the content department about what our characters could dream up and want to spend our money on. And uh, so we'd made up this thing called the, the Helmet of Flying, which was, uh, you know, just like a, a winged skull cap and you'd put it on your head and uh, you'd hold on tight and you could kind of will yourself into the air and it would let you fly. 
And then one of us thought, well, if you've got items, you could also have like a list of cursed items. And I thought, well, we could have like a cursed helmet of flying that has straps. And when you put the helmet on your head, the straps automatically magically do up and then it carries you off into the sky, never to be seen again. Um, so as a, you know, as a player, that would be really terrifying because you'd have to try and find your way down. But uh, one, one of us, it was probably, I can't remember if it was me or Luke at this point, yeah, it was but Luke. it was like, hey, do you have... Do you have a helmet of flying? And and Joey's dire rolls. Yes. Dire roll. <laughs> yes, sure, why not? So Luke's like, All right, I'm gonna buy it. Here's the money. And I'm gonna and then he says, Is it cursed? Is it cursed? And at this point I'm I'm looking at him really warily because Luke, Luke is known for uh, making trouble. He's that kind of player. It's he's hilarious our, in hindsight, but he's he's the troublemaker of the group. One of our uh, one of our studio founders and uh, studio managers, uh, coincidentally. Um, but yeah, so he's so he so he asks, "Is it cursed?" Joey rolls the die, and of course, it's cursed. I was like, "Yes." Ah! Now, I, I, um, I have no idea what they're going to do with this at this point. I just know something is afoot. Like troublemaker is asking me very explicit questions. He has a plan, and I have no idea what it is, and it's kind of terrifying as a DM. <laughs> so Luke says, all right, it's cursed. I put it on the merchant's head and uh, makes his attack roll, and, and the straps do up, and wah, off into the sky, the merchant flies, leaving this cart full of what Joey had just described as, quote, everything, unquote. <laughs> So he very quickly backtracked to say, well, actually, it's not everything, and most of the stuff that he had is just garbage. It's just really terrible knockoff no, garbage. Can't do that. No, just you like can't, that cursed helmet. You can't real- I, to be, I was a new DM. Like, well, I wasn't that new DM for three years, but I was 17. Oh, I was baby. like, whatever. Yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I was like, oh my so, god, how do I handle this? And I was just like, <laughs> my, my primordial teenager brain was just like, punish Luke, punish Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, no, it's all junk. Screw you. <laughs> so, so, uh, so when when it came to naming our studio, we that was one of the one of the memories that we we all kind of collectively remembered and and, and chose to use that name because um, it kind of I don't know it's also kind of inspiring. It's like you know the you know put a put a helmet on and let it let it take you wherever it's going to go um, was kind of a message that we use. Yeah, um, the thing about Aeon Alter is. It has the emerging gameplay, which then has stories which you can tell each other down the pub weeks afterwards. Trust me, this has happened. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to share that story because it is freaking hilarious and breaks every rule I know. <laughs> First of all, don't sell magical items. They have to fight for them. Or if they are given them by some nefarious means, it's usually cursed anyway. Oh. At least, the, at least the DM didn't do Falling Weight. Do you know Falling Weight? Do you know that one? Falling Weight? Falling Weight. Basically, you start off... In a, like, drop an anvil on them? Well, not an anvil. Like, a 16-pound <laughs> weight on them with acne written on the side. Uh, <laughs> basically, walking down the road, you can say, so, oh, you hear a whistling sound. What? Yeah, it's, it's getting louder. It's from, it's coming from the sky. Really? Look up. Oh, it's a little dog. It's getting bigger. <laughs> It's still listening, <laughs> and now it's drawing a shadow over you. What? Like, yeah, it's getting, it's getting louder. Oh, it's really getting louder now. It's like, what is this? And, like, and then you just point to a random character. It's following you. <laughs> All of a sudden, and then the rest of the party scatters, yeah, the rest of, the party of course. Scatters, apart from the paladin, who tries to you know, protect him, because that's what paladins do. Uh, and then, you know, uh, there's a huge splat, and, like, well, he's dead. <laughs> 
What's it get? Saving throw? No. You've got some <laughs> weight on you, so yeah. Falling weight. It's the worst worst thing you could do to a set of characters that are annoying you. Never done it. I've never done it. The worst thing I've ever done. Yeah, I can't say I've done yeah, that. The worst thing I've done as a DM to this day is ask for a person's character sheet, take it from them behind the screen, roll the dice a couple of times, pretend to make some marks on it, and then give it back to them. <laughs> 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 I wish I had thought of that. That's amazing. <laughs> Just scribble on and then they, they freak out. They completely freak. What? It's alright. It's a thing. I now have a, just, I now have a new trick for my next session. Just, just oh, just that's amazing. Just check something. It's alright. And they just you're not doing it. You already you already know what their stats anyway. You, <laughs> you're just freaking them out. Anyway. <laughs> So, on to our next question. What developer in the video game industry do you most admire and why? Mm, that's a good question. So, I, I guess I'll go first for this one. So, for me, uh, I'm a pretty unabashed Blizzard fanboy. Uh, Blizzard games have been uh, really entertaining. They're, they're, they're very good at making entertaining games. They're very good at... Uh, distilling complex genres into something that's more accessible. Uh, and they they are on the sort of forefront, or they have been on the forefront of developer communication, uh, largely because of uh, Greg Street, who's no longer with Blizzard. He's now with Riot. But um, in, in they, they were sort of a little ahead of the curve in, in terms of like just player dev, developer-to-player communication. Um, and, you know, sometimes they screw it up, but who doesn't? So... Uh, but yeah, so for me, Blizzard, like they, like I said, they've they've got a lot of things going for them, and uh, just they they are probably my favorite developer in terms in just in terms of the games that I play. Okay. But at the same time, just as a development studio, I find them fascinating. Yeah, they seem to break every rule that everyone else sets for themselves. Let's work on a game for seven years. Okay, is it any good? <laughs> okay, then let's just throw that in the bin then. <laughs> and then make an entirely new game yes. out of it. Yeah, it's just like, and and everyone's crowing about it at least until recently. But well, that's, that's a discussion for another time because uh, someone else has been distracted by things. People get distracted. By things. Um, um, for me, yeah. for me, it was I think uh, like I said, uh, I grew up with King's Quest yes, and, and, yeah, and Space Quest, and so Roberta Williams was one yeah. of the the kind of first. Um, de- de- designers that uh, I idolized, also because she was like a, a woman really early in, in the video games industry who had a lot of success, there were a lot of them, um, which I think is pretty there awesome. Were a lot more of them than people realize. Just they weren't as there are yeah as prominent uh, for a variety of horrible reasons, which I still you know that's my teeth over about misogyny and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a problem and it still exists, <laughs> uh, but uh, it does unfortunately. Uh, but I'm finding more and more. Um, in fact, I'm in a board game group. Again, take a drink, everyone. Um, but I'm in a massive, massive board game group. And at least over half, actually, of people go to the, the board game group. It's women, you know, because it's that's awesome. It's a social event. It's a social thing because it's board games. It's face to face. I mean, I'm playing some really, really complex board games like Heavy Euro games like Terra Mystica and Scythe, which recently came out. You know, it's the half players are women. We don't mention it. We don't make any call about it. It's just a thing. You know, it's great because it's just, well, you're just a person. 
well, actually, you're an opponent. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm going to, you know, whatever. It's just, but yeah, uh, great call out on Roberta. Um, uh, she did some amazing. I love the Police Quest games. I played them on the Atari SD. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. that. I mean, the first one was just incredible, absolutely incredible, where you drove around and then you pulled people over for drunk driving. It's just amazing. <laughs> It, w- it was pretty good. Um, but I'll also have to say uh, to, to uh, parrot Joey Blizzard, um, also they have a really, really uncanny uh, good understanding of the mind and how to build games that make people feel good. Um, just like the mechanics. Like I, I remember going to a seminar once where, where the, the guy spent you know an hour talking about the mechanics in Hearthstone where you get a new deck of cards or like you, you open up a booster pack to get a couple more cards. And the way that they, they designed all of the player feedback in that little tiny moment of their game was so meticulously crafted to make the player feel like a million bucks when they opened up a you know a quality card. It just feels, um, so, what amazes me is it feels like you can actually touch the cards. They're actually mm-hmm. there. It feels like so solid. And the way that they've done the lighting and the textures, it feels like it's a real thing. <laughs> And any other developer would probably just look at it and say, "That's they, uh, they just had a lot of extra money to throw at it, or they had artists, or they just they just did it and it works well." But the truth is, I'm I'm ninety percent positive that somebody at Blizzard said this is how it has to be because this is going to give us the maximum, uh, you know, player feedback. This is going to make the player feel feel the best, and we want to do all of these things to make them feel feel better about their experience. Um, also, Bioware, all, all of the, the Bioware role-playing games, Summer Leagues, um, uh, really really enjoy the way that they craft their stories. Yeah, uh, Baldur's Gate was um, one of my favourites. Um, yeah. Uh, still to this day, and I'm happy that they re- reintroduced and remade them nice. Windale as well. And they're so deep and so rich and just all-encompassing, aren't they? Um, uh, and and even, for, even for new games like, like Mass Effect, the, the last Mass Effect I played 3, um, a lot of people have con- contention about the ending, but I think the reason people were so contentious, uh, so, yeah, there was so, so much contention about the ending is because the rest of the story, and even the ending of the story was um, arguably really well-crafted. You cared about these characters, you cared about the, the universe, uh, and when it all came to a crashing halt, um, no spoilers for those who, who haven't played it, uh, people felt emotion because of it, yeah. uh, good or bad. Yeah. And and it's so rare to see a game that's mostly just uh, a pew pew shooter game uh, have the ability to, to generate that much uh, that much emotion or that much uh, care for the characters that you're playing. Yeah. Uh, all the characters you interacted with, um, because you know the last thing the last time I can think of that as equivalent, he's going to say it, it's Half Life. You know, um, the characters mm-hmm. in that, yeah, crazy. And of course, also. Um, the characters in Left 4 Dead, they were amazing. Uh, you know, everyone mm-hmm. yells at, you know, Pills here. Oh, yeah, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and uh, Who's Pill? Yeah, who's Pill? Um, yeah, no, Pill's not there. No, it's just me need Pills. Um, but, um, I, yeah, you get so attached to those characters and you glom onto them and attach yourself to them. Uh, especially, in, you know, I was one of those Mass Effect players, like, what, they died? Yeah, no, not on my watch, no. No, no, let's reload that now. Let's try this again. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good call on those fantastic developers, and it's amazing what um, Blizzard have done, especially with WoW, of course, which is still going. Mm-hmm. It's still yeah, still going. 
I think this is what they're they're on year thirteen yeah. now or yeah, something. Don't, 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 is it twelve or thirteen? Sorry, I'm beta testing that bloody thing. Dear God. Anyway, <laughs> it's it's like the Simpsons of video games, right? <laughs> it really like is. That, that game it looks so it looks it's, it's so dated and uh, you haven't you nobody haven't seen knows any of their Legion stuff, have you? Because it, it I does not it does not look dated. No, like it. You should you should really go like look at some of the cinematics and some of the level design they've done for like the upcoming expansion because it is some of their best work yet. Yeah, I would. It's just uh, so addictive, and, you have a and game to make. <laughs> I do. I do have a game to make. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but definitely World of Warcraft. Yeah, yeah holy yeah. moly! The fact that they were able to make something that still has an enduring legacy yeah. today. I was I was certain that that was going to die five years ago, t- ten years ago. Yeah, but they keep um, and every every year they're like, "Hey, we're doing something new." I'm just constantly yeah, like, well, pe- um, blown away. People still playing that, like, yes. Um, speaking of playing, hey, segue. Well done, Chris. Damn, I mentioned the segue. It's no longer a segue now. Um, <laughs> what are you two playing right now? It's my favorite question. Can you give me a hint about what you're working on next? It doesn't ever. Joey? Yeah, uh, Joey, what do you play? Okay. Uh, so, World of Warcraft is up there. I actually do raid leading. How long did uh, you so we're... break? Did you, like, have you been playing all this time? No. At February, I sort of, I had to drop it because Eon was, was ramping up too much, and I was just, uh, with the amount of traveling that I had to do between, like, February and May... It, like running a raid was just not a thing that was going to happen, so we decided to end the raid team into Legion. So I'm excited for Legion to come up because yay, new content, new raids. Um, oh yeah, World of Warcraft. Uh, geez, what else am I playing? Uh, Overwatch. I mean, more Blizzard stuff. Uh, I've been playing uh, Final Fantasy Record Keeper for mobile, which has been a fantastic mobile game. I'm. It's it's basically like the Final Fantasy ATB system meets, uh, and you just collect all the characters. And for a mobile game, it's you could play it casually, or you could play it super hardcore, like theory crafting everything. Right. Okay. Uh, and like there there are fights where it's taken me an hour and a half to beat the fight because I'm sitting there on like the bleeding edge of content, and I'm just like. Oh, this is so cool, and this is so difficult, and trying to put together the perfect team to beat that is just—it's weird. Like as one of those things where it's like, all right, mobile games, woo! But uh, some of them are becoming pretty hardcore, and uh, I, I've been enjoying that. Um, Civilization, I'm super excited for Civ Six. Oh, so excited for Civ Six coming out. Um, and uh, I mean, right now. In terms of active games, that's about all I'm playing because that, like, WoW by itself eats up yeah, a lot of time. I, I but I my cap to you because I used to play it, uh, and I got I pretty much finished Burning Legion, I think. I mean, finished as in all the content, just had everything. My priest was a glowing <laughs> Belisha beacon of glowiness, of glow. <laughs> he was a healing priest, full on. That's all he did. Now I would play whack a mole mm-hmm. during raids, like okay. Okay, this is, okay. I would talk about healing and overhealing and stuff like this and nonsense. I would raid from the back. I would lead from the back. I would lead a raid as a healer. Think about that for a, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
don't everyone that listening don't don't ever do that <laughs> no no actually no do do that because healers see everything like that's that's what i normally do is i heal like if if i i can see the battlefield from yes. the back and if somebody dies like i'm watching their health bars anywhere i know exactly what they did for that health bar to drop and i'm like you you done screwed yes. up son <laughs> Like, you know, I, I got, like, when I was playing, I got yelled at by the DPS people going, You can't raid! He's like, You can't lead! You're just playing whack a mole! Like, that's what they told me. Really? Really? Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> that, that's, that's DPS anyway. DPS oh, no, are wrong. They generally are, they're, just, they're just wrong. <laughs> There's no they're bias here. Screw them. Um, but, yes, okay. What about you, uh, Scott? What are you playing? Uh, well, uh, I have to admit, I, I did get pretty hooked on Fallout 4 uh, a couple of months ago as well, uh, when I finally got a chance to play it. And just like you, I, I, so the thing that I liked about Fallout 4 more than any of the other uh, more recent Fallout games, well, either, either of the other two recent Fallout games, was that, uh, um, uh, like, I, I, I have a daughter now, she's two, um, so being a new parent when I was playing it uh, was especially, like, emotional for me. Uh, because, again, for people who haven't played Fallout 4, I think I'm past the spoiler oh, alert point, but, like, it's, it's, ten minutes in, your kid gets stolen from you, basically, and you're left with this quest choice. The main quest is basically go get your kid back. And and as a dad, I'm like, okay, well, that's what I have to do. I just, I can't go off and explore the wasteland. I'm not going to go get a, a, a chem addiction or... Um, you know, any of these things that are tempting. And but the great thing was that they did a good job of trying to tempt me to stray away from my main path to say, well, maybe don't care about your kid. Maybe you they're, should. They're tempting you with chem addictions. They are. Um, or, you know, going off and, and but, uh, other, other things like going off and trying to do side quests that seem interesting. Like, oh, here's a giant robot uh, that you get to um, pilot in, and fly around in. But if you're going to fly around in it, then you're going to need parts and you're going to need uh, battery sources, fusion cells, um, fusion cores, pardon. And uh, in order to do that, you're going to have to go off and do a whole bunch of side quests. And I thought, well, uh, okay, well, I've got a, main, I've got a quest to do. So um, it was, I found it interesting because it, it kept me very on point because I was always uh, excited to see where the main quest line would take me next. Uh, and, and so I got through the main, the main gameplay of that fairly quickly. Um, and I haven't had a chance to go back and play it from a different perspective yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, also, uh, I also grabbed Overwatch. Uh, I'm I'm not a really competitive gamer. Like I said, I, I grew up playing mostly cooperative games with my friends. I never really enjoyed uh, playing games and being the guy who loses or also being the guy who gloats over a victory. So um, Overwatch is interesting for me because there is a, a, a cooperative aspect. And when I was playing the beta uh, before the game was released, I really liked it because there was this kind of team camaraderie. But since I've tried it, I haven't really... I haven't really experienced it yet, so I'm hoping that when I get a little bit more time in the near future, I'll, I'll be able to sit and, and enjoy it a little bit more, but um, definitely a well-designed game. I, I have to give yeah. credit. Um, and also just grabbed Mordheim, City of the Damned. It's a tactical RPG set in a similar or same universe as the Warhammer Fantasy universe, um, where you control a group of... Uh, like uh, mercenaries, I suppose, that are roaming around this gothic city uh, trying to collect bits of magical stone. And it's it plays very, very much like playing a small-scale version of Warhammer, like the, the miniatures game on a tabletop. But when you, uh, when you collect 
you, you create your little warband, your little mercenary group, and when you finish a fight, any of your any of your little uh, army men who have died will end up getting. Uh, they don't actually die. They get uh, like some sort of a post-game uh, boost or penalty. So, for example, a guy who got taken out by uh, a guy who got taken out during the match might end up only having lost his eye, or he might have uh, you know some scarring. And he, these things can affect their statistics, and you take those with you into the next match. So it's it, it's a really interesting game in that the, in that the, the gameplay is fairly static. But it's the meta game that drives the story forward, and you end up creating this really interesting story uh, for your characters as you go through gameplay, that which I thought game, was really cool. That meta game actually exists in the tabletop version of Mordheim as well as its precursor Necromunda. Yeah, exactly. And and one of the reasons I was excited to try this game was because we we did end up playing quite a bit of Mordheim back in in high school. You know, when we were taking breaks from putting cursed helmets on merchants' heads. <laughs> Which, you know, is a tough, tough, uh, tough decision to make. Well, that's great. Um, yeah. you know, I don't know that game, so we'll have to delve into it myself. But uh, we could go on, but we do need this on the second half of the show, where we delve deep into Aeon. question, which is the zeroth question. Tell us, what is Eon Altar? So, um, Eon Altar is a cooperative uh, fantasy RPG. Uh, First and foremost, it is cooperative. We wanted to build a game that you get together with your friends uh, on a, you know, weekend night. You get some some drinks, some pizza. You're sitting on your couch. You want a game to play together. This is that game. Uh, It's uh, a fantasy RPG based on a on a on a fantasy uh, world that we've been uh, collectively developing now for, well, I guess what 15, 14, 15 years now. So, it's uh, it's it's definitely a, a passion project for us. We've been working on Eon Alter specifically now for about four years. Um, and really, what it is is uh, you you sit down on the couch. The game runs uh, r- right now. We're on PC. We are looking into other platforms in the future, but right now it is a PC game available on Steam. And what makes our game unique? Oh, and Mac. Sorry, yes, yes. Yeah, we're right. on OS X as well. I was thinking about OS X. My Mac, so like, because uh, my laptop yeah. is a Macintosh. Also yeah. available on Mac. Um, and uh, but what makes the game unique is that uh, we you, not not every player needs a controller to play the game. Instead, you just have to show up with the device that's already in your pocket, which is your smartphone. Most people have smartphones now, uh, and our game runs on pretty much any Android or iOS device that's within the last three or four years. And uh, all you need to do is just download the game on Google Play or the App Store. It's free to play. Uh, it's sort of free, to, free for those players to download. Uh, and then you just connect over Wi-Fi. And the reason why we have this play style 
is a lot of people have asked us, like, why do you have a game that you have to play with a smartphone? Can't I play it with a keyboard or mouse, or can I play it with controllers? And the, the really simple response is the second screen gives us a lot more uh, 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 fine control over your character that a controller or mouse or keyboard wouldn't allow you to have. So the biggest thing is secrets. Um, you can keep secrets from other players. You can learn things about your character that the other players don't know. Uh, you can uh, make choices on your on your own device that the other players don't know about. And and all of these choices affect the story as you progress through gameplay with your, yeah, with your friends. Yeah, and it's just, I love the fact that there are times when there's a, we're bashing away at something or hitting something, or making our way through a dungeon or an area, and uh, all of a sudden one of my friends would be just looking down at the phone like, what are you doing? Nothing! What are you reading? <laughs> well, what is that? Nothing! Nothing! Nothing. Oh, I've got a text from my mum. What? <laughs> I had that. I had that one. Your friends yeah. are ter- your friends yeah. are terrible yeah. liars. It's the worst. Like, no, you didn't. Yeah, I did not. Just this thing. Yeah. Fine. We're all in this together, right? Yeah, yeah one team. <laughs> and so that's one of the great things too is like we we made the game spe- specifically knowing that you were going to sit yes. together and yeah. play a game you know just like you were going to play a board game uh, a lot of board games are really good at, at, at creating you know even if they're competitive cooperative games they're really good at creating those little moments of competition uh, making you feel like you were doing better than another player or giving you the option of uh, you know, screwing other players over, and we can do all of this, but only because we're local co-op. Um, and even though the game has a lot of competitive elements, like you can you can throw fireballs and, and light your friends on fire. Friendly fire is definitely a thing in this game. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it's a cooperative experience. You're you're working together, and uh, you're trying to get to the uh, you know the, the name of the game is the Unaltar, and that's the, the the holy holy grail or the pinnacle that your your characters are trying to reach at the end of the campaign. Um, but they're not going to be able to get there unless they work so together. This is the first proper design question, so brace yourselves. Braced. Um, <laughs> the interface on the altar demands the players to split their attention between two screens. What difficulties have you had to overcome to communicate this? I can I can answer that if you want, Scott. Yeah. So having two screens, uh, the for for us, there's there's something I like to the, the big problem is what I like to call the bounce. So you look at your screen, your your phone. You look up at the main screen. You look back yep. down at your phone, and the 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 bounce can get very fatiguing uh, if you have to bounce a lot. So a lot of when we first made the game. Uh, or sorry, when we first made the current iteration of the game that has the the, the cell phones as proper controllers, um, so not the version you saw at PAX East, but this this version is a, a completely is, different yes, build. Yes, um, that was a yeah. thing. It was an amazing it's, thing, but it was a thing. The, <laughs> it, yeah, we, we 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 for for a lot of reasons we ended up having to radically alter our design, but that that's fine. That's game design. That's how it works. Um, but we originally had like the screen almost devoid of UI, the main screen almost devoid of UI. Like it was supposed to be big, bold, and beautiful, uh, and like very cinematic and very uh, uh, just supposed to be gorgeous and not distracting of UI. We're like, we could put all this UI on on the phones, and it turns out not so much um, because that created a lot of bouncing between the main screen and your phone. Uh, so we started having to move a lot of UI elements back into the game 
Uh, and the game, and we ended up having to axe a few of the cinematic features that we originally wanted to put in, uh, because as we're building this UI and we're building this simultaneous co-op experience, um, it, a lot of the cinematic features didn't make sense anymore. Like we wanted to have like, oh, super zoom in on combat if you do a super awesome move in the middle of combat, but if the rest of your party is taking their turn at the same time, you can't do that because then you miss their action and that's lame. But um, for the the secondary interface and preventing the bounce, a, a lot of it is just trying to find a good balance of what to be showing on the main screen and what kind of deep dive information do you get on your controller. And to be fair, we haven't found a perfect balance on that yet. We're still trying to figure it out. We're still working. We have ideas, but there's only so many hours in the day and there's very few of us. Um, so prioritization, all that. But at the same time, um, for us, that just getting the right balance of what information to show and what on the screen just comes down to analyzing how a player acts their turn. Like, all right, you're sitting down as a player. You're using the, the controller to select your target. All right, so you have to figure out who's your target, you have to figure out what you want to do to that, uh, you have to figure out what that target status is, and then you have to figure out, all right, how much, uh, what what action do you want to do to either kill the target, heal the target, whatever, and then watch watching the execution of that action. So the, the sort of four steps of a turn uh, and figuring out, all right, the only time we want you looking at your phone is if you need deep dive information or you're actually choosing an action. So we need to build UI elements on both the main screen and your phone to support that stuff. And we're not 100% there yet, but uh, we're very cognizant uh, about building, like after we did a lot of playtesting early on, we're just very cognizant about uh, building UI elements around that sort of uh, turn order of the thought process pattern. Wonderful answer. Um, you're certainly getting there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Obviously it's something you think about yes. a lot because... You can't go, well, this other game did it like this. What other game? Oh, oh God, no. <laughs> so we, so it's, it's funny because you're, you're talking about this. I actually have a presentation on this exact thing at PAX Dev okay. this year. Uh, so if you're at PAX Dev, you can come see me, come see me pontificate about this exact, this exact design question. Um, but yeah, like, we, there wasn't a lot of games we could crib off of. Like, there was... The closest things would have been, like, Zelda Four Swords or Crystal Chronicles for the GameCube, because they used Game Boy Advances as controllers. Uh, and they we cribbed a few things off them. And I think the other big one was the Scrabble Tile app. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, you play Scrabble on your iPad, and then everybody's cell phone has your your, your tile thing, and you can, like, flick the, the tiles onto the, the uh, main board, which is kind of neat. Um so, like, and then there's the Wii U, but a lot of the promises that Wii U have around secrets didn't yeah. really, and asymmetric gameplay didn't really materialize. What's that on there? Oh, just a whole... Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? It's button. like... What's that for? That's, it's just a horn. Wow. It's just a horn. Oh. Wow. It, but it, I... <laughs> Yeah. I was so excited for the Wii U, and I was then so sad about it. I own one. It's the only next-gen console I own, and I never use it. I think the other thing about our UI that uh, is like it, it's provided us a lot of challenges, but also when we when we uh, committed to using it um, and to going this approach, it also opened up a lot of possibilities for us too. Um, 
being able to uh, screw around with your statistics, like um, read your character's backstory. Eventually, we're planning on having some lore, so you'll be able to go in and, and read a little bit about the world and the, the monsters and, and the items and stuff. Uh, being able to uh, equip gear, unequip gear. Uh, those are all things that, uh, n- nicely enough, you can actually choose to do in your handset without wasting your other the other player's time. Um, so that was kind of a nice bonus of having the second screen. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that you wouldn't normally be able to do. Because if you're not an explorer or if you're not really super comfortable with the controls, you can just you know put yourself on auto-follow on your friend and then go digging yeah. through the menus, do your upgrades, start reading yeah. stuff, whatever. It looks like a, a Japanese RPG where we'd hurt us following each other. One's dragon. <laughs> it does. The, 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 the follow functionality is pretty hilarious. If you... If, if, yeah, no, it's very much like it an old-school JRPG where they're all just... <laughs> yes! Yes, it does. Oh, um, best game. game ever. Anyway, no offense to yourselves. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. it's a good thing to... Good benchmark to measure you up against. Um, but... Uh, I won't protect... I won't protect Chrono Trigger's no. level, but... <laughs> Chrono Trigger what was is, a masterpiece. What is? Mona Lisa mm. time, isn't it? Yeah. Right, exactly. is designed for cop. Uh, and that is uh, very similar to traditional pen and paper role-playing games. How do you think, and I, I know the answer to this, but I want you to tell me, how do you think it also bridges the gap between that very old, almost 50-year-old sort of pen and paper RPG to modern era? What, what do you think? What aspects do you take from one and import to the other and vice versa? That's all you, Scott. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think the first thing that it does is uh, we it's computerized, and one of the first the very first things we said, uh, and and one of the, the the kind of reasons why we made this game in the first place was because uh, Luke, who we mentioned earlier, who's our studio manager, and I were really uh, actively trying to develop an RP, a pen and paper RPG. We were trying to take this world that we've been working on for a decade, and and make it something that. Uh, players could pick up and learn fairly quickly. The reason for this was because we had, like, I had, a, we both had girlfriends who, um, you know, may, might not have been the most familiar with with role playing games, but they were interested. They were keen on playing. They just didn't know uh, all the rules, and our rules were really complicated. Um, and so we started to come up with ideas on how to simplify and make things easier. And we said, well, everybody's got smartphones and everybody's getting tablets these days so why don't we just make a game that you can play on smartphones and tablets uh and let them do all the heavy lifting with all the calculations and all the dice rolling and all that stuff and 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 that was basically the eureka moment where we said well let's let's try that let's try and make a pen and paper experience using using technology in a way that nobody has done before uh and, and try and make an, an experience that actually brings people around a table or around a, a, a couch on, in front of a TV to play a game together. So, so once we made that commitment, obviously the first thing is people who have never played a pen and paper game before can still pick up an altar and play it uh, because all of our statistics, like the you know attributes and skill numbers and, and the choices you need to make for powers are either, either all kind of neatly tucked away in a statistics screen or they're... Um, they're they're you know relatively easy to figure out when you're going through the skill tree. Like, oh, I want to be good at this thing. I want to be good at fireballing. Let's make sure that I get lots of you know points in the fireball tree. Um, and 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 in that regard, it's also very similar to games like Diablo or whatever, where you you know you do have to make choices as you, as you progress. Um, but because it's digitized, 
everything becomes easier uh, for, for, for newer players. But we do still have uh, the, the underlying systems, the tactical combat, uh, character progression, character statistics. Uh, they're all complex enough that people who are familiar with pen and paper RPGs and nostalgic about those games uh, from their childhood or even from, from nowadays, um, you can still have that experience because you can, you can look a little bit deeper and see all of those things are working and, 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 and functioning the way that you'd be used to. So, so I think that's that's predominantly the main re- the, the main thing that, that helps to bridge the gap between that that old tabletop gameplay um, with with new, new new video game technology. Well, there's also oh sorry, I apologize. Um, there, there's also the narrative aspect that you're completely forgetting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I mean. The, 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 the narrative aspect, uh, as we talked about secrets and everybody having their own screens, yeah. um, there, there's a role-playing aspect uh, to the game as well. And like when, when you think role-playing game from a computer, oftentimes you're not thinking actually like legit role-playing. You, like mm-hmm. Role-playing games for computer RPGs usually just means, all right, well, it comes with progression, it comes with stats. Um, for us... We we re- literally mean you're playing a role. So characters have um, so dialogue, for example, like it, it's when you get into a dialogue with an NPC, the NPCs are voice acted, but you voice your own character as if you were like at a table playing Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons. Although it's a little bit role play light because we are feeding you your lines. Although I've been in plenty of play sessions where players have decided to go off roading with their lines, and it ends up hilarious. Um, yep. Uh, but you also have decisions, Bioware-esque decisions to make in terms of like, all right, is my next line going to be snarky or am I going to be polite or is my next line, do I reveal this information, do I keep it to myself? Um, and so from those perspectives, the, the, the game very much plays like role-play light. Um, and it's it's handy for players who... it's It's fun for players who like role-playing because they can really get into the character and they do goofy voices... Uh, you know, the, the Shastik was being played as what a pirate with trust trust issues, as yeah. somebody somebody else had said. Um, uh, but for those who aren't really big into role playing, or they're not used to it yet, or they're just getting into it, uh, it's 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 like role playing on rails, and uh, it makes it very easy for them to get into it and try it out, etc. So, um, from that perspective as well. Uh, we're definitely uh, we're, we're definitely very deliberately mirroring uh, an actual like tabletop role playing experience. I think one mm-hmm. of the things you've done, I wanted to, that's what I was going to cut in with, is the, one of the most intimidating things you can give to a new player of a pen and paper RPG is their character sheet. It is mm-hmm. horrible. Yeah. It looks like a TPS report. With Yep, and it's blank. Yeah. You have to fill it out. Oh my god, just, what do I put in this? Am I doing this wrong? Am I, am I back at work? No, 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 you're not. And then the second thing is you then give them these polyhedral dice, which look like something from the planet Zol. Like, you look at, you look at a 20-sided <laughs> dice. What do you, yeah, we know what D20 is. That's fine. Um, but, you know, I, I'll tell you a story about a friend this happened to who went into an airport and he had a T-shirt on and it had rolling 20s on it. And it had a big hexadecimal dice, you know, with the 20-sided dice with the 20 on it. And um, the, the, it was pulled aside because they thought it was a drug reference. Yeah. Okay. You see, because we, don't, we just think, we think everyone else, 
No, no, the rest of the world doesn't know what a d20 is. Still. They know what a d6 is, and they just call them dice. Yeah, but the one says, oh, it's a d8. A what? Oh, and and the worst thing is the DM when you go, okay, you just roll two d10s and a d12. And they look at you as if you're speaking another language. Like, what do you mean? Well, that that one there, clearly that's a d. Look, that one. No, 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 that's a four. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, you are you are legit speaking another language at that point. You're speaking the yeah, language of role playing. You try to you give them all this information. That, so what I'm trying to say to you is, Ian Alter does away with all of that, all of those barriers, all of those dreadful. I mean, even to the, still think to this day, character sheets are the most poorly designed aspects of of, of uh, role playing games. Even to this day, I still think they haven't got it right. <laughs> You know, and believe me, I've seen I've had mm. a copy of the first edition D and D, and it is you can't read it. It's gibberish. It's genuine. How we play the game, mm-hmm. is that? I don't know, but it's it's gibberish. But th- those character sheets pretty much the same. <laughs> They've got we've got to fix those. Just, but what you've done here is like well, enough of that. You know, that's unfortunately a, a method by which you communicate with this world that we're trying to create in our heads. Unfortunately, it's a bit, you know, it's very hard to, to comprehend. Whereas, if you've got a phone, yeah, if you stop looking at pictures of cats, will it, just for a second, and we're just going to go for adventure instead. Does it, does it have any cats in it? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's true. The adventure does have a cat. Chas 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 and a yeah, giant cat statue. Freak out a catnip. Which you know, there it is. Maybe you could put it in, in the second edition. I don't know. Um. <laughs> uh, I'll pass it. I'll pass it on to our writer. With the screen, it's both point and aim in real time. Was that always there? I don't remember that being always there. Could you tell us about the? the you already hinted at it, but, but the position of the movement is quite impressive. But. Tell us about how that evolved, please. Well, I'll start. I'll start by just saying because Joey will actually have a lot more yeah. to say about how it's currently implemented. But when we started, um, and and you played this version when you yeah. when you met us at PAX in uh, in Boston in 2013, uh, it, it started with a, with a tabletop iteration. Like I said, we we wanted to take a, a pen and paper tabletop game and and make it digital. And our first thought was, hey, everybody's got these huge tablets or they're going to be getting these huge all-in-ones that lay flat. Um, why don't we make this experience uh, and, and and go with it? And so the, the first thing for us was that the phone was almost predominantly just your, your character sheet and your dice. Uh, whereas the central screen was, it was the map, it was where your characters were placed, it was, um, it was where you did all of your movements. So you'd actually put your finger on the screen and you'd drag a line to create the path that you wanted your character to follow, and when you released that character would run, uh, you know that that many steps, and uh, that that kind of movement felt quite um, uh, like the, people understood it. Uh, there was like a range, a distance, like a maximum distance you were able to move, and so because you could only drag that tether so far, that represented your maximum distance, and it just kind of became one of those features that made it into. The, the evolution of, of the current version of the Unalter. Um, but we, we did also want to add the extra feature that allowed players to continue to um, 
to just kind of run around naturally because we decided to go all all in on real time exploration, so it wasn't turn based anymore. Um, and and also because because the thing we found about uh, lay flat tabletops is that if you want to play a game where everybody's running around in real time, it becomes this weird like tangled snake of people's arms trying to move in every which direction. Literally and twister. We yeah, we weren't trying to make twister. We were trying to make a, a fun game. And so when we when we made the decision to to go back to a couch situation where you're looking at a main screen um, and turning the the handset into more of a controller, uh, that uh, that idea of having a uh, like a, we call it the marker that you're moving around to look around your environment before you make your decision is kind of one of those things from our early prototype that ended up sticking. Uh, yeah, Joey, Joey, you've got more. <laughs> I, do I? I don't know. You actually covered most of it. I mean, the, the, I, I wasn't around for the original prototype, so I apologize. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to slag it per se because uh, there's a lot of good ideas in uh, in it and with it, and some of those good ideas we ended up having to leave behind because of the current iteration. But the the original prototype was pretty a uh, pretty close to literal translation of of a, a tabletop RPG. Um, I'm not going to say it wasn't imaginative, but it was a, a relatively literal thing. Um, mm. And 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 it turns out that there was a bunch of problems with that in terms of, like turns being too slow. Uh, especially if you have five, four or five players, I think the prototype could handle up to five. So mm-hmm. even, even with even exploration being turn-based, it was it was just it played too slow. Um, and then you had the twister problem if you turned it like to fix the too slow thing. You're like, all right, well now it's real time. Well now you're playing twister with your arms. Um, and uh, and and as Scott said, the 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 secondary devices in the original prototype were were almost vestigial. Uh, they they didn't really do anything other than your character sheet, some bits of dialogue, and in uh, in combat they were your your targeting device. Like it was it was a prototype, but it was a really mishmash like thing. Uh, lots of interesting ideas all thrown together in the pot, and then we're like, all right. Lots of, there's lots of things wrong with this iteration because that's what you do in, in game design. You iterate, uh, and that was really the first iteration. So the first nobody ever gets it right the first time, like mm. never ever. Um, so that that's like, I it, it makes it sound like I'm slagging on them, but I'm not really. There there was a lot of good stuff there, um, but again, iteration is key. So the next iteration was all right. Real time. Let's let's try this couch co-op thing, which then turned into like, all right, well we have the screens. Let's actually control our characters from the screens, and that 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 was an interesting evolution because now now we've really gone off at that point because when you look at like Zelda Four Swords and things like that, Game Boy Advance they have a D-pad, they have buttons on them. If we've got actual phones that like they're not controllers. So the question comes down to is like, all right, now we have literally nobody to crib off of. We're we're doing this from scratch ourselves. This is a legit, totally different innovation here. Oh my god, what do we do? <laughs> and it like we I think for the the movement marker itself, we call it the movement marker, which is a, a horrible misnomer. It really should be called the targeting marker, but it's yeah. too late. It's it's I mean it's it's it, a mouse cursor really. Right. It, it, it's a mouse cursor, and we went through, I think, six or seven different iterations of that, slowly honing in on 
better, more natural controls, like just different ways of mapping from screen to screen. How do you, where, when do you allow it to be controlled? How do you allow it to be controlled? Um, like, are you mapping it to screen space? Are you mapping it to world space? Are you mapping it to character space? Um, how do you deal with the fact that, like, we've got the phones now, they're held in portrait mode versus most widescreens? Like, you've got a vertical orientation mapping to a horizontal orientation. How do you deal with that? So, it, it sounds like a lot of math, and there is a lot of math, but at the same time, it, it was lots of nitty-gritty iteration on design to try to get to where we got now, which, what we have now for the mouse cursor, um, I'm, I'm going to toot our own horn on this. It actually feels really good. Uh, if you're on a decent... If, if your router is not, like... Crapping the bed. Oh yeah, it feels oh, really right. good. If your router, if your if your router is really slow, then it feels terrible. Or if you have a low frame rate, it feels terrible. But almost every control is going to feel bad at a low frame rate. So personally, vouch for that. It's uh, it's really, really so responsive. In fact, it does freak people out when they first play. It, like, wait, I just need to log onto your network <laughs> and then just what? Like, yeah, just use the Wi-Fi. No, this is this is witchcraft. I, I need to burn. I need to burn you now. <laughs> I get a lot of that. Yeah, I need to burn you. My phone. You know, pile trying to burn me because it's like they just generally think it's witchcraft because they can't believe that their phone is interacting with my my computer, which is then throwing the image up onto the large screen in my living room. Like this is this is insane. You you should tell them they can't burn you because you yeah, don't float. Well, you're not a duck. You're not like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> which is always good. Um. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah. So the 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 mouse the the sort of the movement marker that was between I know Leah and myself did a lot of work on that. Leah got most of the way there, uh, and I I did a lot of polishing afterwards. But there was the after she left, um, but. And that's not her fault. I make it sound like it's her fault. It totally is not her fault. It was just there was more work to be done. That's all it is. It's, it's almost always what it is in, in game development. It's just there's more work yeah. to be done. And you will never, there will never not be more work to be done. You just eventually have to say, all right, this is good enough for now. If it becomes a bad thing, we'll revisit it. But, yeah. um, but for us, we knew like games are made or broken on their control scheme. We knew we had to get this right. And so... The like, despite it being a relatively simple "quote unquote" thing, we we probably spent hundreds of man hours on getting this yeah. control scheme right. I can I can well imagine because you're breaking barriers. You're going to realms where, quite frankly, everyone else would run screaming, going, "No, fools, angels tread! No, sorry, this, this, no, no, nothing good can come from this." Um, yeah. Um, the yeah. The other half is the. Say, oh, well, sorry. Go ahead. A little bit long. Um, but uh, so we're going to have to wrap it up a bit I'm afraid it's been, been fascinating talking to you both about this extraordinary game uh, and uh, I'm really really excited about it I have been ever since I stumbled into that booth uh, unawares about what I was about to experience uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I can't congratulate you enough for what you've done it's certainly you know, and I've, I'm playing this game with very hardcore pen and paper RPG players so I'm doing the other way taking it from the other way like could we just get away from the really heavy complex like RPG games that no one plays and just, <laughs> could we just try this like 
but it's it's a screen. I don't know. <laughs> the light screens. Can we can we have more weird dice? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, uh, but Joey Scott, thank you very 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 much for being on the show. Uh, it's uh, Eon Elter is out currently on Windows PC and Mac. Is that right? Does it work That's correct. Yeah, or Linux or something? Does it, does it work on Steam U OS yet? I don't know. No, Not currently. Uh, and also, it runs on iOS and Android devices. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. The yes. controller app is free on Android, iOS, and the main game is, I think you can get episode one for $7 US or $8 US, I don't remember what it is. Uh, I always forget the prices, yes, yeah. Sorry, uh, uh, I it some time ago, but it, the, the thing is, it, um, it, it is an extraordinary thing. I have found that if someone hasn't got a phone, it's not quite up to the scratch, I just pass them my iPad. Uh, they use that instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's quite common. Absolutely. Uh, if you've got uh, people who don't have a quite of a device, you probably have one that does it as well. Uh, you have more than one device, your phone and something else. It's quite common, um, so don't don't worry about that. And like I said, it is the application to run to interface with the game itself is completely free and has a very small footprint. I, I hasten to add, it is not bloatware by any stretch of the imagination. Well done, Joey. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> also, um, I just want to quickly add. Um, so right now, um, our episode yes. one is available. Um, so we are releasing our yes. content episodically, um, and our episode two is coming um, very soon. We don't we don't have a release date for it just yet, but we're working on it really hard. Um, yet, we do, do absolutely, yeah. We do have a seasons pass available on Steam as well. Usually, the best value for money, and also the best way to support such an extraordinary endeavor. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I wish you the very, very best of luck in, in your future endeavours, uh, which uh, imminently is actually going to be packed, Thank you. so that's something you've got to survive. Uh, <laughs> but, um, survive is the correct term. term. But, uh, yes. Fantastic fantastic having you on, and uh, more than welcome to come back and maybe uh, chat about episode three and four and stuff, uh, later down the line, see how far you Absolutely. And see what's changed and what's... Uh, because by then you have the iPhone 7, etc. God knows what that's going to be like. Um, <laughs> so, you know, all sorts of technologies may have changed since between now and then. So, um, yeah, thanks very much. Hey, thank you very much for having us, Chris. And so ends another episode of The Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up The Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter, at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to this show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, shall we say, of spong.com. Bye!